children imitate their parents. And it's a natural part of the learning process. From small actions that we make every day to the things that we value, to our habits, our mannerisms, our attitudes, they see us and they imitate us. And this isn't just limited to children either. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so imitation is a part of how we learn through discipleship. And it's even how we learn in other places, like the workplace. And right now, our son, John, just turned two, and he wants to imitate me in every way that he can. And if we're not careful, we'll sometimes see that he disappears. And if we go looking for him, we'll find that he's sneaking into the garage because he wants to go to work. Right? He sees me do everyday things, and he wants to do them too. And a child is made in the image of his or her parents. In fact, in Genesis 5, it says that Seth was made in the likeness of Adam. And this carries with it more than just what we look like. There are innate attributes of who we are and what we do that are carried with image. And the Bible talks about image in a special way. And there are other definitions that can be found, but the way Scripture describes the image of God is more than just a picture or an outline or even the way we see ourselves. It's a comprehensive thought that lies in the background throughout Scripture. And it includes elements of who we are and what we do. The imitation is one way that it works itself out in our lives. So let's, let's read from Ephesians, and then we'll get back to this idea of image and imitation. Starting in verse 17 of chapter 4. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice 
to God. At first glance, this may seem like a tall order. In fact, it is a tall order. Paul is asking a lot of us. But this is more than just a list of disjointed commands. He wants us to represent God well. And as God's children, we are made in his likeness. We're called to imitate him, to be like him. And our ability to share certain attributes and traits with God is rooted in being made in God's image. In fact, in the midst of these admonitions to live in light of the new life we have in Christ, Paul refers both to being made in the likeness of God in verse 24 and also to imitating God in 5 verse 1. In fact, each of these verses transition into sections where Paul challenges us to live in light of who we are in Christ. And there's a repetition there. Image kicks off one section, and then being imitators kicks off another section. The point that I'm making is that these are related concepts. So let's think about how we can fulfill these commands in Ephesians 4. And really, this extends to the whole second half of the book. We can be imitators of God because we are made in God's image. And this is what we were made to be, but it's tainted by sin. So this is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And we're going to explore a topic related to the image of God. So I have a question for you this morning. How does image shape how we can be imitators of God? Here in Ephesians 4, we see the image of God patterned after the example of Christ. Paul drives the message home by commanding us to be imitators of him. And there are some similarities between this and other sections later in Ephesians and also Colossians 3, which we'll be getting to in the Colossians series, where the new life is applied in very practical ways. We're to sing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, for instance. Right? These exhortations point to how we should show the world who God is and what he is like and what his people are like by imaging him well. And so let's get back to the source here. Let's, what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick survey of what it means to be created in God's image, then we're going to come back and apply that to how to image God well and to fulfill the command to imitate him. So we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, where we are created in God's image. So in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We were created in God's image. This one statement tells us several things, doesn't it? It says that it's his image that we bear. It also says that we were created beings. And that the creation of mankind has a special purpose in God's plan. 
So the Bible helps us to understand who we are by saying that mankind is made in the likeness of God. It helps to answer the question, what does it mean to be human? This is what we were created to be. All of mankind, both male and female, were created in God's image. And there's three things that we should see here. And we're going to trace those through the rest of Scripture as well. theme of image, a theme of dominion, and a theme of relationship. You can see there in Genesis chapter 1. Image is innate to who they were. Right? It tied Adam and Eve back to God. And it carries with it certain attributes. People have pointed to our creativity, to our rationality, to our morality and justice as characteristics tied to being created in God's image. And we depend upon God for our existence. Yet we are independent persons who were created to rule under him. So going on in verses 26 through 28 of Genesis 1, we see this emphasis on dominion and also on relationship. So mankind was made to rule under God's authority, to have dominion over the earth. They were also created to have a relationship with God the Father and with one another. And this was the state that Adam and Eve were created in before the fall. So what are some things we should take from this? First, that image-bearing points to the Creator. Each are tied back to aspects of who God is and how we're designed to image Him. Each of the image, dominion, and relationship. Right? When we fulfill our purpose and image God well, then we point back to the one who made us. And so we, when we respect the image of God in others and help them to image God well, then we honor God and point to our Creator. And the question then is, to what extent does the image of God, or is it affected by the fall? Right? Some have argued that the image of God is destroyed in the fall. And others have argued that it's tarnished, it's affected by sin. Sin impacts us greatly. Right? We don't rule well. We don't handle our relationships well. What is created for good and instituted by God is twisted by sin. It is something destructive. And we see this all the time. Sin takes what is good and twists it and distorts it. Further on in Genesis 9, verse 6, we see that murder is evil because it is the destruction of the image of God. It says, For whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. So this passage, it's after the fall. And it shows image as an innate attribute that remains. It's not dependent on how well we functionally image God, what we do, but rather it's an aspect of our being. It's who we are. Then in verse 7, that's the part where it says, and you be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. It's really, it's a repeat of a thought from one, Genesis one twenty eight. And so it shows that dominion remains. So there's aspects of both the form and the function of image that continue even after the fall. And as we continue through scripture, we find the idea of image is there and it impacts both who we are and what we do. We were made to rule over the created order under God and in a relationship with our creator. 
We were made to live in relationship with one another. And aspects of our relationships image God. And all people possess the image of God, regardless of their ethnicity, of their culture or their age, their wealth or their status in society. Right? The image of God is the basis for the defense of the unborn, for the defense of orphans and widows. And it affects the whole person. It affects our intellect, our physical person, our spiritual selves. It's about life, but it's also about living well. It's, through our vocation, our hard work, and our, our love for others, we image God. Yet the image is clouded by sin. People in their sin don't want to image God well. They even devalue others who carry the image in them. The effects are are evident, and the world awaits the restoration of the image of God in mankind. And so the same theme of image can be traced through the narrative of redemption. First, sin has tarnished the image of God in mankind. We don't image God well, do we? In our lives, in our daily interactions with other people. Many people openly work to subvert God and to dishonor him. And they're, in effect, attacking the image of God even within themselves. As they work to prop up their own image in its place. As an illustration, consider something like Proverbs 18, verse 21, which says that life or death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. James keys off of this same thought, and he combines it with image. Paul addresses that same subject in Ephesians 4. Right? The same tongue which is made to image God can be the cause of death. Sin turns what is good and created by God into evil. The dominion of Genesis 1 becomes subjugation, abuse of power, and control. And the relationships of Genesis 1 become conflict and manipulation. So sin has tarnished the image of God. But Christ is the true image of God. Redemption carries with it the restoration of God's image. So we see this now in part, but when Christ returns, it will be fully seen. Christ is the firstborn, the true image of God, and the redemption that he brings will restore the image to mankind, where it was before the fall. And in recent sermons from Colossians and from Hebrews, we went through some passages where there were strong declarations that Christ is the image of the invisible God. He takes God who is invisible and makes him manifest before the world. Christ is the perfect likeness of God and he images God to us. And so sin has tarnished the image of God. Christ is the true image of God. And image bearing does reflect the cross. Turn over from Ephesians 4, a couple pages over to Philippians 2. Probably a familiar passage in 2, 5 through 11, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. So to say that image bearing reflects the cross, what I mean is that it reflects the sacrifice of Christ. Some might say it's cruciform or or patterned after the cross. He took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man. And we should have this mind among ourselves. And so one of service, right? Sometimes this means giving up something that we want for the sake of others. God gave him of himself for our sake. Therefore, we should count others as more important than ourselves and look to their interest above our own. So sin has tarnished the image. Christ is the true image. Image bearing reflects the cross. And image bearing is part of the restoration. So the image of God is a theme that tracks with this narrative of redemption from creation to fall to redemption, to restoration. There's an aspect of image that can be traced through each of these. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, he makes a comparison between the old Adam and the new Adam. And he says, we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. Think of what that means. Christ is the perfect image. We shall bear the image of the man of heaven. In Romans 8, 29 he adds, that we're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So this is a work in progress in our lives, but it's working towards a fixed end. When all things are restored to right, then we will bear the image perfectly. And we'll truly imitate God as a natural outpouring of our hearts that have been restored. So image describes who we are and it guides what we do. Said another way, it affects the core of our being, and it helps us to navigate a life well-lived. It should affect all aspects of life. With redemption and a restoration of God's image comes a renewed life, one where both the form and the function of image are restored. And if we image God well, we function in ways that God intended. The dominion over creation implies several things. It's not just about rule. It's about ruling well. And this includes aspect of what we might call culture or vocation. Right? By culture, I mean that we are like God and that we're creative. We want to create and do wonderful things. And by vocation, I mean that our hard work has value. Both the artist and the laborer's work can honor God. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with your might, says in Ecclesiastes. Now, we started Ephesians 4 this morning, and then Paul builds his argument in chapter 5. And he shows how image impacts each of those relationships in Ephesians 5, heading into Ephesians 6. In 5.15, he tells us to make the best use of the time, serving one another. In 5.22 through 25, there's this marriage relationship that's supposed to image the relationship of Christ to the church. As Christ loved the church. In, in chapter 6, there's the relationship between parents and children and also between servants and masters. We honor the image of God when we honor it in others, right, through our relationships. 
So this is just a quick survey of what it means to be created in God's image. But we're called to be imitators of God and therefore to image him well. So how do we do that? Calls to imitate him, they're just a reminder to bear the image well. Image informs how we are to imitate God. We were made to image God as part of our being and as the natural function of our lives. And so image affects how we view our relationships with others and with God. As we seek to fulfill the command to imitate God, so let's do this well. So we image God by honoring his image in others. Do we honor God in the way we treat others? You know, that passage from Genesis 9 I referenced earlier, it makes it clear that murder is an atrocious crime, not because it's against a simple command or that it's even against a civil law, but rather it's the destruction of the image of God. And many will die from disease or from accidents or even war, but murder is where we presume the right to take the life of another who is created in God's image. So to murder is to take upon ourselves the right reserved for God. And this makes it an offense against God on the basis of the image of God within each person. And this is the principle that James draws upon when discussing the evil of the tongue in James chapter 3. In 3.8 he says, But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. And we curse those made in the likeness of God. How easy is it for us to do that? To use our words for evil against those who bear the image of our Creator. And when we make crude remarks, we objectify the other person in an image that we have made of them in our minds. We ignore the image of God in them. Remember, harsh words don't add to our argument. And the objectification of another person is ignoring the image of God and devaluing them in our sight. It's a way in which we justify ourselves rather than seeking our justification from God. So isn't it interesting, when you see clickbait articles... On social media, it says something along the lines of, watch so-and-so destroy this other person that they disagree with. Why why do they put a headline up there like that? Because they say, oh, this will get people to click on it. There's something that draws us into that. We simplify our opponents down to an image that we can take down. How how often do we hear, even from our own mouths, insults, cursing, snide remarks, cynicism directed at another image bearer of God? And when someone wants to justify murder or genocide or subjugation of other people, you can look at this throughout history, to propagate their view, they push the idea that those others are just no better than animals or tissue or less than human in some way. We have to justify it in our own minds by by ignoring the image of God in those people. It's a restless evil full of a deadly poison. With it we bless 
our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. And we also image God in our relationships. Let's look at Ephesians 4. Actually, sorry, let's, let's move over to Ephesians 5. And let's start in verse 15. And we'll read some sections on into chapter 6. And go through that in a little more detail. So Ephesians 5, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Let's go down to six one. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters do the same to them. And stop your threatening. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And that there is no partiality with him. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ is one way that we image God well. Right? None of these relationships in this passage can work if we don't respect the image of God in the other person. In the first part of this section, Paul tells us to look carefully how you walk and then submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here we see the imitation of Christ means to defer to one another, to serve one another. Then he backs this up with three kinds of relationships. First, is between a husband and wives, where the language used is as the church submits to Christ. And love your wives as Christ loved the church. And Paul says that marriage images something greater beyond just the, the human relationship that we might perceive. It's the relationship between Christ and the church. 
So our relationship with one another images Christ. And he continues with parents and children and servants and masters. And all of these are examples of our relationships and reflect our relationship with Christ. And so this is Paul giving examples which follow from chapter 4. Where, remember, he said, Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God. In true righteousness and holiness. Right? So as we are changed and renewed and our new selves means that we increasingly image God well. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, therefore be imitators of God. So this is more than just a command. It's part of what we were created to be. It's the restoration of the image of God in men and women. It's part of the plan of redemption. And it's a theme that's consistent with the gospel message. We image God through our relationships, but we also image God through our vocations, through the things that we do, through culture. And if you read something like Psalm 8, it's just an echo of, um, of Genesis chapter 1, when it says you've made him a little lower than heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen. And also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So here we see that dominion again in Psalm 8. It's similar to Genesis 1. And Now I use the term culture in the heading. And rather than dominion, you could use dominion as well. Here in, in Psalm 8, that mankind is described in terms of the role that we have under God. Right? We're charged to bring dominion over the earth. The thing is, it has to be a dominion in line with God's character. It's not a dominion of domination and subjugation. It's a dominion that brings dignity, honor, excellence, all in line with the character of God. It's what we were created to be in order to bring order, creativity, justice. So you may be familiar with a book titled Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. Right? The idea behind a title like that is that we would be used for God's purposes. Similarly, Luther uses the term, the mask of God, to mean that God accomplishes his work through us. But the idea there is that our calling to image God well includes all aspects of our daily lives. Even the common tasks that we do, we do for the Lord. So our vocations, our stewardships, by which we image God before the world. And that's what it is for each of us to rule under God's authority. And we do it in ways that are consistent with who he is. Right? Just as Paul teaches us in Ephesians 4 through 6, right, to, to follow God, to follow after the mind of God in a certain way. Images who we are and images what we do. And so for each of us, our daily lives, we, we are to act with God's grace. We are to seek justice. We are to love mercy. We are to walk in relationships with, relationship with our Lord, relationship with others. And this is for mothers to image God well before their children. Right? This is for office workers to image God well before their co-workers. This is for those who work with their hands, creating wonderful things that we all enjoy, whether authors or plumbers, or physical therapists, or teachers, or retirees. Right? This is for all those who love the Lord 
and diligently work in the sphere that God has called them to. So life is valuable. Not just because we say so. Or because it's an arbitrary absolute. It's valuable because of our creator who created mankind in his own image. And valuing life is more than wanting people to live. It's valuing those who bear God's image. It's honoring our creator by honoring the image that he's created in each of us. And so the implications are vast. Right? It includes valuing life and also helping people to flourish in their calling. It in, it's encouraging everyone to live lives that honor God and to image well in their daily interactions with others. It's for us to live in covenant relationship with our Creator and to live in service to one another. Ecclesiastes talked about hard work. First Thessalonians 4 similarly says, Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. And so what should we do with all this? How should we respond? Be imitators of God. But know that only those who know God will be able to imitate him. Jesus says... For no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. So first, image. Consider the perfect image of God, Jesus Christ. Christ is the perfect image of God. He leads the way in restoring creation. So we were made by God in his image to know him and to be in relationship with him and to bring his kingdom and to rule under him. But if you don't know God, then this is going to be very difficult for you to do on your own. Sin has corrupted the image of God. And we toil under the bondage of sin. But Christ came to redeem people from their sin. And he leads the way in restoring God's image. So turn to him, recognizing how you have desired to set up your own image above him. And how you've lived a life separate from him rather than in dependence upon your creator. So image, it may be a theme that runs alongside the gospel. It informs our understanding of sin and what is right. But understanding image is not what will save you from your sin. We sin. We hurt others. We objectify them. We seek selfish ends. But this should point us to the cross. We don't come to God by just doing better. We come to God through Jesus Christ. And Christ died taking our sin upon himself. He died so that we might have life. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And so God works through Christ, his perfect image, to bring reconciliation to people. And as a church, we are called to carry that message. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God.
So consider Christ, who is the perfect image of God, and turn to him for new life. Second, dominion. Image God well in your life. Seek to know God and what he is like, and then desire to be conformed to his image. This affects your character. It affects your work ethic. It affects how you treat others. So image God well, even as you mow your lawn. Image God well in the checkout line. Image God well as you discipline your kids. Image God well as you walk by the way or as you drive down the road. Image God well as you interact with your spouse. And third, relationships. See the image of God in others and let that guide how you interact with them. So image affects the value that we place upon other people. They are individuals created in God's likeness. So I, I'd urge you to think carefully about how you view the image of God in others. How are your thoughts and actions towards them shaped by what you know about the image of God? When we disagree with others, when we see them sin against one another or against us, how do we view them? Do we see them as trash? I've seen people called things like a disgusting excuse for a human being, an idiot, a jerk. Who are we angry with? Remember what James said. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Right? From the same mouth come both cursing and blessing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. And similarly, in Ephesians 4, that we opened with, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for the building up as it fits the occasion that may give grace to the hearer. I do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children, and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So imitating God is imaging him well. And let's know what that means for us. Let's live our lives in light of his image. And let's live in relationships shaped by that image. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.